the pinnacle of the book of Hebrews was reached in chapter 12 when we visited the two mountains and we heard God's two speeches. Now in chapter 13, the preacher begins his closing remarks with a series of admonitions. These six verses are all instructions on love. And not just any love, but a distinctly Christian love. One word for love is repeated three times and ties these verses together. Love is first commanded, and then it is modeled in a variety of ways. Love is seen to be the fulfillment of the law. So these verses will bring several of the Ten Commandments to your mind. And other verses will display the basic unselfishness or, or other orientation of Christian love. Now these six verses contain four pairs of exhortations about love and each has a supporting motivation. So my four-point sermon today presents each scriptural pair of related instructions along with a reason why we ought to obey it. The first pair is found in verses 1 and 2. It can be summarized this way. Love cares for both brothers and strangers. That's found in verses 1 and 2. Love cares for both brothers and strangers. First, love to brothers must continue. Some of you may know that the word here for love is the word Philadelphia. It's found in the New Testament six times and always describes the love between spiritual brothers. This is an affection between family members of Christ's church. It is the distinctly Christian love of the Christian brotherhood that's in view here. Now, Philadelphia comes with the new birth. When regeneration brings faith and faith is placed in Jesus Christ, the grace of brotherly love always closely follows. This is because when we are united to Christ, all of his graces become our graces. They are counted not only on our record, but they are worked into our lives. Love for the brothers, those who also are the children of God by the new birth, is deposited within us by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul can say to the Thessalonians, now with regard to brotherly love, you yourselves have been taught by God how to love one another. Then it becomes our responsibility by the power of that same spirit to grow that love in sincerity, in fervor, and in actions. And all of that according to the word of God. For those of you who want to review this sermon later today, perhaps over lunch or you can look at Romans 12 and 1 Peter 1 and 2 Peter 1 and find other occurrences of this brotherly love and see how it works itself out. That's what the preacher is saying here. You already have a love for Christ's brothers and you must continue to love. It must grow 
and it must prosper for the glory of God, for the testimony to the world, and for each other's good. Again, this is a distinctly Christian love. I'm not saying that the word here is only meant to be used among Christians. I'm saying in the New Testament, Philadelphia is always brotherly love. All right? There are, of course, other words for love that the New Testament uses that also apply to Christians. Philadelphia doesn't feel emotionally different when you do it than other loves, but it is a love defined by God as desiring and doing what is good for those in the family of God. Like all true love, it is the opposite of selfishness. It seeks to bless a son or daughter of God, even at a cost. And it comes from a soul that has experienced the same selfless love of God as the other soul that it is helping. So Philadelphia is a necessary part of the Christian life but it's also an assuring part of the Christian life. If you find it, it should tell you, that's a sign that I'm a Christian. In other words, to turn it around, if you hate Christians, you aren't one. The world hates Christians, but Christians love other Christians as well as the world, that is, unbelievers. Love doesn't justify you before God, doesn't make you stand righteous before him, but it does demonstrate that you have been made right with God through faith in Christ. So love is a mark of the Christian. Love is a mark of the child of God. It's the great mark, in fact. This is why John can say in 1 John 3.16, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. There it is again, Philadelphia. This first exhortation stands as the first of this pair of commands, but it's also the theme that runs through the next six verses. It's the under, it underlies the rest of the exhortations that are found in verses two to six. So first, brotherly love must continue. And now let's see some examples, certainly this isn't exhaustive, but some examples of what brotherly love looks like in action. Well, here's the first one. Love to strangers must not be neglected. In most English Bibles, this second exhortation is translated, uh, don't neglect entertaining strangers, or don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. The word for entertaining or opening your home is literally to show love to strangers. So he's commanded us in verse 1 to show love to the brothers, and now it's show love to strangers. Now, almost certainly these strangers, when we compare scripture with scripture, are traveling Christians, people on the move and therefore unknown personally to the Christians that the writer is writing to. Sometimes these Christians are fleeing persecution. 
At other times, they are simply traveling on business. Other times, they were teachers and preachers of the word. Neither brotherly love or love of strangers was found in Roman society. Those were signs of weakness. And what was glorified in Roman society was power. So to care for the weak, someone in need, to love someone that you were spiritually related to in this way was unknown. And so taking care of members of the family of faith, whether they knew them or didn't know them personally, really set Christians apart from their culture. In the early Christian writing called The Teaching, this grace of hospitable love was encouraged, but it was also regulated so that false brothers and traveling charlatans would be known and marked. This command reminds us to be ready to approach, interact with, and invite into our homes those who come among us on the Lord's Day, for example. Are they a brother or are they a stranger? Yes, they're one of those two things probably, right? They pretty much have to be. Not sure what else would be left. Then let us love them in this or similar ways. Let us heed the exhortation and not think only of our own comfort, but let us show hospitality. Now, there's a motivation given for these commands to love brothers and strangers. And it's this, and this might strike us as rather unusual. Some have unknowingly hosted angels. Now, I've hosted a number of you in my home, and I know none of you are angels. I've been in your home. You had no doubt I was not an angel. So how would this reason be helpful to us? How would it actually motivate us? Well, first of all, know that this is probably a reference to the experience of Abraham and Lot. There are a number of other cases recorded in the scripture, but that is certainly the most prominent one. Remember that three men, well, that's how they're described to begin with. Then they're described as three angels. And then they're described even more accurately as really two angels and the angel of the Lord who was the pre-incarnate son of God, right? In some kind of bodily form. So it is really God himself and two angels. They appear to Abraham and to Lot. And what do Abraham and Lot do? Well, they give them food and lodging. They are hospitable to them in great distinction from the unbelievers around them, right? You know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. But how does this function as a motivation for us? Are we to expect that some of the visitors we invite home are actually angels? Well, I, I tend to doubt it, but I suppose it could happen. I think the point, though, is this. That to be visited by angels in the Bible is always to receive a blessing. Angels appeared to announce or to give blessings. In all of the cases in the Old Testament that I'm aware of, the one showing love to strangers received a blessing and more than they gave out. How true that is to my own experience. Having another Christian 
in my home, even when I don't know. It takes grace. It takes a little bit of risk. But love for the brothers thinks not so much about what it costs you in money or food or discomfort, but what do they need? <laughs> how, how, how may I serve them? And when you do this, don't you often find that you are blessed more than you bless them? You give them food and a chair to sit in, and they tell you of Christ's work in their life or the church, or the part of the world that they're from, and you gain a delightful blessing. And this makes sense. Why? Because they're angels, and some of them are the Son of God? No. But because Christ is being formed in them by the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so you find a common love for the things of God. You feel a, a real connection. Often it's immediate. There is, in other words, sincere Philadelphia going on. Well, this brings us to the second pair of exhortations. And that is this. Love remembers the imprisoned and the mistreated. Love remembers, first of all, those in prison. Verse 3. Now, of course, the early Christians had much practical experience with fellow Christians being in prison for their faith. Stories from the early church tell us how they identified with their brothers and supported them with food and legal help and at times even joined them in prison so that they would not be alone. They remembered them in loving and practical ways. They didn't remember them by just thinking about them from time to time. So this is a call to not forget to meet the practical needs of imprisoned Christians. Now, through God's kindness in this nation, we don't generally know of Christians being put into prison for their faith. But let me urge you to consider the following. This certainly won't last. You, you don't have to be a prophet to know that the kindness of God in having our nation approve of Christianity is a very strange historical anomaly and it will not continue forever. So while this is not an immediate need perhaps for most of us anyway, this is the time to fix this command in our minds so that when the day comes you will be ready to identify with the prisoner and love him, not desert him or forget him. Amen. Young people, remember this. Second, you may know some who have been converted in prison. Love them by praying for them, sending them Bibles and good books, visiting them if possible. And lastly, for brothers in prison for their faith, in oppressive lands, let us love them by calling upon their Father that he would give them grace to be overcomers. We are not only to remember those in prison, we are to remember those who are mistreated. Of course, not everyone who is persecuted for being a Christian is placed into bonds. More are oppressed or harassed. They're mistreated in a variety of ways, including being outcasts to their families or to broader society. This is one of the great benefits of the church. 
Some of you are the only Christian in your family, your biological family, and you have a better, a more permanent, a real loving family in the local church. Well, all of these who are outcast in this way need to be remembered, not forgotten, but cared for in love. And then the preacher again motivates them to this duty by saying this, because we're united to them. Remember those in prison as if you were in prison with them. Let me ask you a really obvious question. If you were in prison, would you remember that you're in prison? Pastor, that's a stupid question. Of course. Of course, if I was in prison, I would feel it. I would know I was in prison. I wouldn't forget that I was in prison. Well, you are supposed to be so united in love to your brothers who are in prison that you never forget them. That when they are in prison, it's as if you were in there with them. Amen. In other words, you, you can't forget them. You must remember them. And he also motivates them by saying, hey, remember, you're in the body. Now, he doesn't mean by that you're a part of the body of Christ, although that's true. What he's saying here is you have the capacity to feel the pain that they are enduring. You have a body too. Your day may be coming. Don't forget them. Exercise compassionate concern and even action for them. The third pair of love actions is this, found in verse 4. Love honors marriage and its intimacy. Love honors marriage and its intimacy. Brotherly love continues when we respect each other's marriages and obey the seventh commandment. Honor marriage. As God's ordinance, marriage is to be honored. It's not a mere human custom that can be respected or disrespected as we wish. Marriage must be, by Christians, highly esteemed because it is ordained by God, because it is the foundation of society, and because it reflects, it pictures, it should display beautifully the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church. So it's time, if you're one who does this, it's time to stop making constant jokes about how terrible the institution of marriage is. Instead, let's be thankful and even reverent in our words about marriage. Brotherly love honors marriage also when it keeps proper boundaries between you and another's spouse. You know, a husband hugs his wife a different way than he hugs a sister in Christ. Right? A sister kisses someone, some other Christian differently than the way she kisses her husband. And that's absolutely appropriate. That's a way to honor marriage. Philadelphia never does anything that will tend to undermine or tear down a marriage. Brotherly love doesn't act that way. But love not only causes us to honor marriage, it causes us to honor marital intimacy. 
it's always good to be reminded that intimacy is ordained by God and it doesn't defile marriage. You know, some of the early Christians, some of the monastic orders thought that any kind of sexual intimacy, even that within marriage, was defiling. No. God said it was good. <laughs> and it remains good when it's within the bounds that he places it. In other words, sex within marriage isn't dirty, but it must stay within the bounds of marriage. That's what he means by the marriage bed. It's, an, it's a euphemism for marital sexuality, and it's pure. It is pure. Brotherly love honors this when we are careful with our interactions with each other. When we put away suggestive language and we avoid tempting situations. Flirting may seem harmless fun, but if unstopped, it is the pathway to defiling the marriage bed. And so God supplies us with a very strong motive to love one another properly when he says, I will judge immorality. That's the motivation here at the end of verse 4. God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, those two words are the same two words that we studied last week in regard to divorce. They refer to unlawful or unnatural intercourse and sexual unfaithfulness to a marriage partner. These scriptures state what is found many times elsewhere in the Bible, that God will judge people who engage in this. And when he says judge, he doesn't just mean make a, a, a call about it. He means to con that it's condemned. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 clearly states that the sexually immoral and adulterers, again, the same words that are in our verse, will not inherit the kingdom of God. There is no salvation for those who practice, that is, live a lifestyle of sexual immorality and never repent. But I've heard people say, and perhaps you are foolish enough and wicked enough to entertain the following thought. Oh, but pastor, I'm not going to practice it. It's just going to be a one-time thing. To foolish thinkers such as this, remember the warning found in the last chapter of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 16, where it says, see to it that no one becomes immoral or unholy like Esau. There was a path. There was a walk. It started with just a, it's just a single time. And then it was a second time. And then it was a third time. And it ended up that Esau was characterized not by morality, but by immorality. As many have said on this subject, do you really think that if you unleash this sin, you will be able to control it? Honest people know better, don't they? Like Cain, this sin crouches at the door and its desire is to overcome you. No, no, you must master it. 
which begins with avoiding all occasions of these sins. Now finally, one last note about this motivation. Some of you might be thinking, this isn't a very high and holy motivation. I mean, you should be telling us to be pure because God is pure, or Jesus was pure, or this brings glory to God. or that. Yeah, all of that's true, and you can find those motivations in the Bible. But this motivation, which is also in the Bible, says, don't do that sin so you won't reap the horrible consequences of hell. <laughs> don't want to go to hell? Then don't be an immoral person. There are many legitimate motivations given in Scripture to not sin. And their bad consequences are one of those motivations. Use it, brothers and sisters, along with all the others. Here's the fourth pair of love instructions. Love not money, but be content. Don't love money. Be content. Sexual immorality and covetousness or greed are closely associated many times in the New Testament lists of sins. They tend to go together and they tend to be put closely together. They are, of course, near each other in the summary of the law of love that we call the Ten Commandments. The Sixth Commandment forbids theft, which is often rooted in the love of money, and the Tenth Commandment directly forbids coveting. So that leads us to consider first staying free from all greed. Staying free from all greed. Now here's another one of those places where the word love is. Love of money is literally the love of silver. Greed just seeks its own. Greed just wants what it wants. This is in contrast to brotherly love, which seeks the good of another person. And that will have a significant effect on how you spend your money. <laughs> is it yours? Are you keeping it? Do you never have enough? Or do you freely give in God's ordained ways? out of love for the brothers. You know, it can be really hard for us prosperous Westerners, and every one of you is that, to agree with this demand to not love money. I mean, money is so useful. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's so many good things that it, it can gain us in this life. And that's true. That's true. But this warning is repeated over and over and over again in the New Testament. Jesus was very clear. You can either love and serve money, or you can love and serve God. Period. Full stop. We cannot serve both. It's not that we could and we just don't. or We're not very good at it. If you, if you try a little harder, uh, maybe you would. No, you cannot. It is an impossibility. You can't have two gods, is really what Jesus is saying. You can't have two gods. There aren't two ultimates. We tend to want to blur those words. Well, maybe I can have it both ways. No, you cannot devote yourself to God and to money. 
Remember that one of the qualifications for an elder is that he not love money. Paul warns Timothy that the love of money is the root to many other evils, including apostasy, leaving the Christian faith. Like sexual sin, greed frequently leads to apostasy. And of course, the great New Testament example here is Judas. He lusted for money. He was the one who kept the purse. The offerings that were given to support Jesus and the apostles as they traveled around from women and the crowds, he kept that purse. John's very clear about who it was that was responsible for it. It was Judas. It wasn't any of the other apostles. Well, he lusted for money and he kept dipping his hand into the apostolic purse, but that wasn't enough. And so he actually sold the sinless son of God for love of silver. 30 crummy pieces of silver. Well, instead of loving money, we are to stay content in heart. The righteous alternative to greed is contentment. Our lives, what is more, we could, we could blow up the beginning of verse 5, keep your life free. That's, that's a word that describes all the ways that you think and act. It's a lifestyle. Well, it should be to put off greed and put on contentment. You know, most of us know that being poor in itself doesn't guarantee contentment. Some of the most discontent people in the world are really poor, just like others are very, very rich and are still discontent. Being truly at rest with whatever God has given you does fulfill this law. And to be content is to be satisfied with what God has presently put into your hand. In other words, it's the opposite of constantly grasping for more and more and more. It's a happy submission to God's wise and good ordering of your affairs. Don't you think that the all-wise, all-good God, if he knew you'd be better off with more money, don't you think he'd give it to you? Who would stop him? You see, you have what you have because he knows that's what's best for you, at least for today. Tomorrow it might be different, and the next day it might be different still. But you have what you have because your heavenly Father, who loves you purely and wisely, knows this is what you need. The Puritan pastor, and I might add, very good friend to our earliest Baptist forefathers, Jeremiah Burroughs famously preached on this subject in a book many of you know called The Rare Jewel of Christian contentment. Those were a series of sermons that he preached to his people and they were put together in a book after he died and, and published. And it's, it's frankly one of the great classics uh, of the Christian life, of the inner life. I would highly recommend it to you. In there he gives a multitude of scriptural reasons why we should be content. And one of them, of course, is what's found here in verse 5. The motivation. The God who is present will sustain you. The God who is with you will take care of you. 
Here is a promise suitable to every condition of life. Our God will never leave us. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. This means he will not for any reason, at any time, under any circumstances, leave you to yourself. He will be with you to meet your every need, and that includes material needs. I didn't say material wants, everything you can imagine, but your real material needs. God will meet those. Doesn't he provide for the birds and we are more valuable than they? If he clothes the grass of the field, won't he clothe you? Lack of contentment is often rooted in lack of faith. But the preacher assures us here that our Heavenly Father knows that we need food and drink and clothing and shelter. And if we seek first his kingdom, all these things will be given to us. So brothers and sisters, be at rest because God is always present with you. And he is present to sustain you. Well, that brings us to the uses of this sermon. And this is a really interesting text because I didn't have to write these uses. The uses are verse 6. Right? Here's what he says. Uh, here's love, and here's some ways that it shows itself, and God makes this promise. So when God speaks to us that way, how do we respond back to God? Well, we respond back to God in verse 6. We say, the Lord is my helper. I won't fear. What can man do to me? And from there, I get these three responses, these three uses. By the way, they all come from Psalm 118. The first is a confession of faith. The Lord is my helper. The Lord is my helper. We ought not to be shy about where our help comes from. It comes from the Lord, he who made heaven and earth. Let's not be so proud as to think we are our own ultimate helpers. Well, it was from God and me. No, it's from God. God alone is your helper. And let us confess to all who will hear, the Lord is my helper. But our response should be more than just confessing our faith. It should be to express our confidence. That's in the middle of this verse. I will not fear. Here he is speaking to himself. Right? I will not fear. <laughs> I will not be afraid. Brothers and sisters, quit listening to the fear or lust or discontentment that speaks from your remaining sin, that wells up from within you in weak moments. Instead, simply say, I will not fear. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. <laughs> and in this particular context, no matter how God calls me, to display brotherly love, I will confidently obey him. I won't be afraid to reach out and help. I won't be afraid to pray for them, to say hello to them, to invite them. to No, I will not be afraid. And then thirdly, 
we not only confess our faith in response to all of this and express our confidence, but we boast in God. What can man do to me? What can man do to me? That's not about man. That's a boast in God. I would urge myself first and then all of you, don't be a slave to the fear of man. Become a slave to the fear of God and you will be free indeed. The things you will be able to do with joy and that God will bless in your life, you will be amazed. Don't let men, the fear of man, shut your mouth. Don't let the fear of man, oh, he's a nut, he's a kook, he's this, he's that. Can you believe the way she thinks, the way she treats her children, the way they... uh, Don't listen to man. What can they do to you? So when God calls us to side with persecuted brothers or to live lives that go against the flood of immorality or when we are called upon to depend on him for our daily bread, let us boast in God. Men don't have the power to ultimately harm you. So live in this Philadelphia manner unto God and do it all for his glory. Boast in God. Let's pray.